Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, 23 through 28, and Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sons, sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that they may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, what are they doing? That what is, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and the man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the early 90s, Brian Stevenson founded the Equal Justice Initiative, EJI. And EJI is an organization built to provide legal representation to prisoners who may have been wrongfully convicted of crimes, poor prisoners without effective representation, and prisoners living on death row. And in his move to Alabama to start this work, Brian Stevenson encountered staggering opposition. 
and there was no small amount of controversy surrounding him and his organization. He was told by Alabama officials, if you go digging in those wounds, you're going to make a lot of people very unhappy. Brian Stevenson knew what he was in for. And in the beginnings of EJI, Stevenson recruited a young woman by the name of Ava Ansley to run operations for him. And in the screenplay adaptation of his book, Just Mercy, there's a scene where Ava Ansley reflects on the decision to follow Brian Stevenson in this work. And she says to Stevenson, when you asked me to do this thing with you, I knew that I'd lose some friends, have people talking behind my back or to my face. I don't need people to like me as long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I don't want my son growing up knowing that his mom stopped doing what was right just because she was scared. And more than 30 years later, Ava Ansley is still running operations for EJI, where they have freed more than 2,500 people from unjust imprisonment. In his earthly life and ministry, Jesus Christ came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And one of the central aspects of this work was to provide representation to prisoners, spiritually and physically poor prisoners, prisoners living on death row before a holy God. And in the course of his life and ministry, Jesus encountered staggering opposition, and there was no small amount of controversy surrounding him. In so many ways, the religious establishment of the day told Jesus, if you go digging in those wounds, you're going to make a lot of people very unhappy. Jesus knew what he was in for. But one of the questions that Mark's gospel raises for those who would follow Jesus is this question. Do you know what you are in for when you follow Jesus? Do you understand that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to follow him through controversy? You may lose friends. You may have people talking behind your back or to your face. But you don't need people to like you when God loves you and you're doing the things you're supposed to do as his beloved. Followers of Jesus must not stop doing what is right just because we are scared. Mark the Evangelist wants to prepare his readers to follow Jesus through controversy. And if we're going to faithfully follow Jesus through controversies that arise due to our commitment to his word, then we must consider our relationship to our culture, our relationship to our mission, and our relationship to our neighbors. So let's look at our first point where we consider our relationship to our culture. And when I say our culture, I'm not talking about our broader American culture. I'm talking about our own personal respective cultures from which we emerge. Now, up to this point in Mark's gospel, we have learned of the popularity of Jesus and, and how great crowds gathered to him. 
But in this cycle of texts, Mark is showing us the other side of the coin, his opposition, and the controversy that his ministry surfaces. And you can see in the text that the controversy involves Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees, or what you might call the religious establishment, or the religious influencers, or religious power brokers of the day. But we need to understand more about who they were in order to get what's happening here. The Pharisees were the theological and moral watchdogs of the covenant people. And they exercised their influence through the synagogues, working against the corrupting influence of Greek culture. And we must always remember that Jesus and his disciples were Jews, and the Pharisees were also Jews. At some level, what we're witnessing here is sort of like an intrafamilial kind of debate or battle or series of controversies here. As Gentiles, like most of us are, we have to appreciate that dynamic. We're, we're sort of like flies on the wall to a, a, a series of controversies that are, are, are sort of internal at some level. And at the time, there were a number of different political and religious sects among the Jews. But the controversy in this cycle involves Jewish Jesus, his Jewish disciples, and the Jewish Pharisees. And I note this because it's important to keep these facts in mind, lest we fall into the grievous and shameful error of painting the Jewish people with a broad stroke and directly or indirectly portraying the Jewish people as inherently corrupt based upon their ethnicity. Christians must repudiate this anti-Semitism that is born of erroneous interpretation. And through the history of the church, Christians have not always done this well, but we must strive for this. But the dynamics at play are this. You have to understand that the Pharisees were a purity movement. And many of these Pharisees were sincere and they were not malicious. This, this purity movement was one in which culture and faith bled together and were nearly indistinguishable. They were focused on these culturally coded faith boundaries and prosecuting those whom they perceived to be boundary crossers. They're focused on these culturally colored faith boundaries and prosecuting those whom they perceived to be boundary crossers. This is really important to understand any of the Gospels. The Pharisees see Jesus stepping outside of the boundaries of their orthodoxy. And this is at play in every single passage that is before us this morning, from dealing with sinners, to dietary laws, to purity regulations, to Sabbath observance. But Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, is showing them what orthodoxy looks like lived out 
And they are not only completely uncomfortable with it, but they are blind with rage because they think that Jesus is corrupting their faith. And we are no strangers to this error of the Pharisees. This very brand of controversy exists today. American Christians persistently blend our racialized American culture with our faith and cast suspicion over cultural outsiders and label critics of this religious syncretism as dangerous. This controversy today creates a false choice between the faithful preaching of the gospel and addressing injustice to welcome neighbors. And further evidence of this affliction, this, this culturally captive faith, is revealed in the fact that the primary framework that American Christians have for thinking about the world is the very American liberal versus conservative binary, or some cipher for this. And this woefully inadequate framework leads people to false accusation and slander, politicizing what we should be gospelizing, undermining the Catholicity of the church, fomenting a spirit of fear rather than the spirit of power, love, and self-control, reinforcing a dysfunctional way of navigating difference in God's church, and undermining the countercultural and cross-cultural witness of the church. In these controversies, Jesus is showing us that there's a difference between the expression of your faith through your culture and the captivity of your faith to your culture. I want to say that again. Jesus is showing us in these controversies that there's a difference between the expression of your faith through your culture and the captivity of your faith to your culture. How do you tell the difference? Here's the deal. When your faith is merely being expressed through your culture, your culture is subordinate to the authority of Scripture, the Catholicity of the Church, and the mission of God. And wherever your culture comes into conflict with Scripture, you're willing to repent, to submit, and to follow Christ. You are reformed and always reforming. You have been changed by Jesus, and you're being continually changed by Jesus. That's what it looks like for your faith to be expressed through your culture. But faith that is captive to culture subverts all of these. It will reinterpret scripture to justify itself. It will seek to either assimilate or dominate brothers and sisters, and it will depart from the mission of God. Culturally captive faith struggles to admit wrong. It cannot be humbled. It ends up silencing inconvenient parts of Scripture, and it fails to teach people to obey all that Jesus commanded, Matthew 28. It ends up being a very desperate faith that is self-protective. It clings to influence. It grasps for control. And it is more attuned to the nostalgia of the good old days 
than it is to our future hope. Mark wants us to see how following Jesus will transform our relationship to our culture. And he wants us to be prepared to follow Jesus through the controversies that will inevitably arise when you resist this. But he also wants us to consider our relationship to our mission. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Listen to this verse. And they watched Jesus so that they might accuse him. And they watched Jesus so that they might accuse him. The condemnation of the Pharisees is that they utterly failed to see the man with the withered hand in chapter 3. They could not see the desperate man before them. They could not feel his anguish and suffering. They were completely oblivious to the mission of God because they were so focused on trying to gather evidence to accuse Jesus. They turned the mission into a fault-finding mission. They, they, they didn't consider the, the human dignity of this royal image-bearer before them. This, this man with the withered hand was depersonalized. He was invisible to them in this moment. So fixed were they on catching Jesus in an error that would never come to be. We see here that you can be completely convinced that you are a champion of orthodoxy, even as you oppose the author of orthodoxy. Don't think yourself better than the Pharisees. They were more earnest and more devoted than probably any of us would be, religiously speaking. And the sad part is this. Some people, even Christians, are going to mistakenly spend more of their time watching so that they might accuse than they do watching for their neighbors as missionaries. They will be more attuned to finding fault in you than finding opportunity for serving God's mission. And I know that some people see the primary focus of the mission as defending the faith. And there is biblical teaching to this effect. But there is as much biblical teaching or more calling us to defend our neighbors, to defend the weak, to defend the poor, defend the rights of the needy. This too is scripture. But tell me this. How much time did the Pharisees have for God's mission, how available could they be for the mission when every single paragraph of this series shows them following Jesus around to hound him and accuse him? In a similar way, how much time can we have for God's mission? When we are wasting time accusing people on social media or reveling in whatever errors we perceive others to be caught up in. In that very moment, we are guilty of a similarly weighty and grievous sin ourselves 
So thick is the hypocrisy of those who are watching to accuse. Jesus was sent by the Father. He was about God's mission, and his work was as coherent, broad, and deep as the needs of human life. And as it was for Jesus, so must it be for the church. God doesn't send us as a secularized church that only cares about this worldly activities and interests to the exclusion of the gospel proclamation. Nor does he send us as a separatist church that is only involved in soul-saving preparation of converts for heaven while it closes its eyes to the realities of suffering and poverty and injustice and violence. The church that embraces the full scope of God's mission in this cultural moment will face controversy. But the faithful will follow Jesus through controversy without allowing those watching that they might accuse to derail them from the way of Christ. We see this emphasis so clearly in these passages. The focus of Jesus contrasted with the focus of the Pharisees. The difference could not be more clear. And those of us who would follow Jesus must have that similar clarity of focus to the one we follow. And finally, Mark wants us to consider our relationship to our neighbors. Look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, the very beginning of this series of passages. We see that Jesus doesn't allow the criticisms of his detractors to stop him from doing the good and serving the desperate. I'm going to say that again. Jesus does not allow the criticisms of his detractors to stop him from doing the good and serving the desperate. In these 12 verses, we see Jesus relating to neighbors as an advocate. And in verses 13 through 17, we see Jesus relating to neighbors as friend and a welcoming host. That's important for us to understand. Jesus is transforming our relationship to our neighbors, and it's contrasted with the way that the Pharisees related to neighbors. When you read these passages, you see that Jesus sees the desperation of the paralytic and his friends. And we, we need to digest what's happening here. Get, get your imagination going. See the scene unfold with me. L look at this text. These men carry their friend confined to a bed mat to Jesus while Jesus is at home. And when they get there, the place is packed. There is no room for them to squeeze in through the door. But there they are, so desperate that they climb up on the roof 
and do a major demolition job on the roof of the house where Jesus was staying to bust it open, destroying the roof so that they can get their friend to Jesus for help. Are you, are you getting a sense of their desperation? Can you recall any times where you were desperate, where you needed help, where you didn't have anywhere to turn except one place and how desperately you fought to get to the place where you could get help? That is the, the desperation that's being communicated to us in this passage. Now, imagine somebody desperately breaking down your door or smashing your window, or tearing a hole in your roof to get in and ask you for help. Uh, you could imagine this passage turning into something very different. At the first notice that there were people on top of his roof trying to break through it, Jesus could have stopped it from happening. I mean, the, the, the demo job of tearing up the roof would have taken some time to develop. And Jesus could have said to the crowd, hey, look, I need a few of y'all to get some vandals off of the roof of the house. This could have turned into a lecture from Jesus to the vandals about respect for property. Once they opened up the, the man-sized hole, Jesus could have said, what are y'all doing destroying my friend's house? If you want my help, you don't start by tearing up the roof and leaving a gaping hole. I wasn't looking to get a moon roof today. But Jesus, he's attuned to their humanity. He is attuned to their desperation. He is in touch with their faith. And the first words out of his mouth are, Son, your sins are forgiven. Do you see the tender response of Jesus? Do you hear the pastoral heart of Jesus? Do you sense the love of Jesus for the desperate and does a similar heart beat within you? Jesus' response was to address the point of desperation, to meet the need rather than focusing on the destruction that resulted from their desperation. Jesus doesn't justify the destruction of property but he understands it. And he's more focused on addressing the desperate situation of this royal image bearer than he is on protecting stuff. It's stuff. Stuff, royal image bearer. In the heart of Jesus, according to the heart of God, the royal image bearer weighs much more heavily than stuff. Jesus' regard for human life, his value for people, stood in stark contrast to the position of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, out of a very pious regard for moral exactness, wound up 
obscuring God's love and welcome for sinners. So much so that they are scandalized by a rabbi who would play host to those whom they regarded as enemies. Jesus' relationship to neighbors created controversy. It was guilt by association in the minds of his opponents and detractors. It was a slippery slope in their minds. But do you see what it means for followers of Jesus? Listen, like the Pharisees, we make our neighbors who are not like us into the enemy. But Jesus shows us that our neighbors who are not like us are the harvest. They're the harvest. They're to be the targets of our love. They are to be the the people of our affection. They are to be the ones we serve. They are to be the ones toward whom we have tender hearts. They are to be the ones that we have empathy for when they're suffering. We are to, to know and feel their desperation like Jesus. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to be like Jesus? It's a real question. There are certain things that shouldn't even be controversial among Christians because they have never been controversial among Christians. Caring for the poor, scandalous mercy towards sinners, the dignity of all image bearers, our responsibility to address the realities that harm image bearers, speech ethics, the way we use our words and talk to people, sexual ethics, the way that the global and historic church has always understood who we are as people in union with Christ and the way our sexuality is to work, and the list goes on. These are never meant to be controversial in the body of Christ. But it is to the shame of the American church that certain Christian commitments have become controversial. We should notice in these texts the nature of the controversies that Jesus is involved in with the Pharisees. They all have to do with his faithfulness to what the scriptures always taught and how those practices had fallen into disuse or misuse. It's in these cases that Jesus pronounced the blessing over his faithful disciples who would follow him in this controversy. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus will later go on to say that no servant is greater than their master. If they did me like this, Jesus says, they're going to do you like this. But do you see where this all goes? Whenever we fear doing things that are right 
and good and true according to the Christian faith because we're concerned about getting into controversy or we're concerned about our reputation and what other people are going to think of us or say about us, we have to ask ourselves the question, where would I be if Jesus was unwilling to get into the controversy and be controversial for my redemption? Where would I be if Jesus was more concerned with his reputation in the public square than he was for saving my life? Where would I be? Where would I be without the scandal that was the cross? If Jesus had played the coward and avoided the controversies introduced by redeeming love, we would be without hope and without God. If he had not borne the weight of false accusation and slander and mockery and contempt of his adversaries, we would sink to rise no more. But in his controversy was saving mercy. He endured negative press so that he could positively bless us with his love. And family, there are lots of people who need us to be controversial in Jesus' name. They need us to follow Jesus through controversy because there will be no justice unless God's church is willing to be controversially faithful. There will be no evangelism if the church isn't willing to be controversially faithful. There will be no true hospitality if the church isn't willing to be controversially faithful. There will be no cross-cultural love if the church isn't willing to be controversially faithful. So let us follow Jesus through controversy, filled with faith filled with hope, filled with love. Let's pray. We praise your name, Jesus, because of your saving love, because of your courage to face the controversies that would emerge from your faithful following of the Father. We thank you, Lord, that you had such regard for us, that you did not treat us like enemies, that when you could have been watching to accuse us, instead, you watched for a way to rescue us. We thank you, Lord, for this wondrous love. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant us the strength by your spirit, the courage, the tenacity, the dependence upon your grace to follow you through controversy, not for controversy's sake, but for the good of our neighbors, the way you always meant for us to orient our lives in this world, to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for the ways in which we have blended our culture with the faith and allowed our faith to be captive to our culture. 
the ways in which we have edited the Christian faith to take out the inconvenient parts that we don't want to follow. Forgive us for the ways that we refuse to humble ourselves and learn things that we have never thought of before as it relates to how the faith works. Forgive us for orienting ourselves to the world from a position of fear and concern and self-protectionism because we're afraid that they might take us over or we're afraid that we might be marginalized or alienated. When all the while you show us that the most potent church through the history of the church has been the church on the margins. And the most compromised church has been the church at the center of political and social power. Lord, we pray that you forgive us for our vain ambitions and our idolatries that lead us to corruption. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us and that you would renew us. Renew a right spirit within us, Lord. Help us to focus on the things that are near to your heart. Help us to remember the weightier matters of the law. Lord, we pray that you would help us to faithfully be your people, your heralds, your witnesses, your servants, your followers. And we pray that the, that the neighbors in D.C. would experience all the benefit and blessing through the way that you continue to heal and mature your church. We pray for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.